Welcome to the Reframers Podcast. Arguing with friends and fam about politics is hard. New plan. Let's reframe what it means to discuss and disagree by talking and listening to each other. We're the Reframers. Alrighty. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Reframers Podcast. Yes, welcome back. Happy to have you here today. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us. So this week, we are going to talk about Afghanistan. Unless you've been hiding under a rock, you've probably heard that the United States, after 20 years, has withdrawn all of our troops from Afghanistan. And there's been a lot of developments and a lot of drama surrounding the withdrawal. So we're going to discuss that today, probably discuss the war in general, the withdrawal, and then the impact that that will have or that we think it will have for the United States going forward into the future. So we'll start out with a little bit of context about war and the United States and the Constitution, and then move on to the specifics. So a little bit probably of a somber episode today, given the situation, but um, we felt like it was important to talk about it while, while it's still you know developing. So I hope you enjoy the episode and hopefully we can have a good discussion. If you've been hiding under a rock, I wouldn't blame you. That has kind of been the emotional space I've been in recently as well. I think I'm not alone here. We always like to try to come to this with, you know, the frame of reference of what would the founders do? What did they think? What did they feel about this? What did they intend for us to do? But we're going to have a lot of thoughts and feelings this week and a lot of just trying to process. And I hope that it's helpful for people listening and encouraging or maybe just feels like a safe space to hear some of your scared thoughts and frustrated thoughts out loud. So let us know what you think for sure in the comments and um, feel free to share this episode with anyone that you think should hear it too. Thanks for jumping in and doing this with us. I agree. I think this is a lot of, it's a lot of processing. I don't, you know, I think we're all, all three of us feel just frustrated and discouraged about the situation. And I think that is a general feeling in the United States right now. So to get started, though, we want to take a quick step back and like we like to do, talk about the founders and kind of what they thought about war. The founders are clearly no strangers to war where our country started with a war. And so they wanted to cover this in the Constitution. How'd they do that? So Article 1, Section 8, Clause 11 gives Congress the power to declare war. The president has military powers as the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, and that's in Article 2. So these provisions, they they structured them this way because it requires cooperation between the president and Congress regarding military affairs, with Congress giving funding or declaring operations, and then the president, who is more nimble, directing it. Something that's interesting about this is that in more recent military conflicts, Presidents have actually taken military operations without the express consent of Congress. So this includes like the Korean War, the Vietnam War, currently or or just ended the war in Afghanistan, and then also in the conflicts in Iraq. Just so you know, we call this the Iraq War, the Afghanistan War. We never had any declarations of war from Congress. These are sort of just military actions that the presidents various times, because these wars have spanned different presidents, uh, military actions that presidents have taken that Congress has 
implicitly agreed to by providing funding, but we've never actually declared war in these countries, which is kind of interesting. Is there a reason for that? I mean, I think that it, it depends on who you ask. You know, I think that one of the reasons we don't is we don't want to actually say that we're like declaring war. I think it's a political thing because in all respects, we are engaged in warlike conflicts, particularly in Afghanistan, because it it lasted so long. It was in one country. We characterize it as a war. I think it's a little bit also of passing the responsibility buck. Congress yeah. doesn't ever declare war so then they don't have to take responsibility for it and kind of similarly with the president it's sort of who's really doing this and it's kind of everyone so the buck never really stops with anybody i think it's a bit of an abdication of power by congress really constitutionally they should be the one anytime we send troops anywhere that say whether we should or shouldn't do it because you know we are a nation that's self-governing and we're sending ourselves there in the actual actions when the when the president does this, it's always like, oh, it's a police action or it's anti-terrorist operations or it's, they always have some euphemism. So it's not like I'm saying we're going to war in Afghanistan. It's always, we're going there in a limited capacity to seek out Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda who orchestrated 9-11. Like it's never just, I'm going to war. Whereas in you know 1941, when we were bombed at Pearl Harbor, you had Franklin Roosevelt go in front of Congress and make his speech. That's when he made his famous, you know, this December 7th, 1941 date, which will live in infamy speech, where he begged and urged Congress, please give me a war declaration so we can go after Japan who attacked us. That didn't happen after 9-11. Or it sounds like several wars previously. Right. Yeah. Not just 9-11, but for the present conflicts, it didn't happen. I didn't know that. I think it's interesting too, the, the wars vary a little bit beyond World War II, just because, especially during like uh, Vietnam, right? This was part of the conflict with Russia, sort of related to the Cold War and, and stopping communism from spreading. And, it, you know, declaring war in like Vietnam maybe would have been kind of akin to declaring war against Russia. And that was also happening you know, Afghanistan starts way back then also because conflicts in Afghanistan, the Middle East, between world powers have existed for a long time, actually. And there were fights in Afghanistan back during the Cold War era as well. And so I think there were sort of these political motivations to say, well, we're trying to, you know, create democracy in these areas, which I think we'll talk about more when we talk about mm -hmm. Afghanistan right today. But characterizing it as a sort of democracy protecting mission as opposed to well, we're declaring war against a country has a different connotation you know whether you agree that they should have said it that way or not i think probably not i think congress if we're sending trips i agree with zach here that we should be making congress is responsible for this and yeah. particularly in the middle east you know that probably should have been a declaration of war if that's what we were doing and it was what we were doing but we didn't want to say it i think mm -hmm. Russia, like you mentioned, Russia spent 15 years in Afghanistan and had a very similar outcome to what the United States just experienced here this past month, where they spent 15 years and, you know, the Russians were the number two military power in the in the world back at the time. And similarly, the Afghanistans fought them tooth and nail 15 years and Russia had to withdraw, similar to us. So it's funny, I'm, I'm reading Tom Clancy's Clear and Present Danger right now, which is I love all Tom Clancy books so far. They're fantastic. But 
it's a book focusing on the drug war and how the United States um, in this fictional story is sending a small team of like eight, you know, two, two teams of eight kind of army guys down to like Colombia to deal with the cartel and drug cartel. And it's, you know, it's all fictional operations and stuff, but it's like the book explicitly is dealing with the question of, well, it's not really a war, but we're sending military troops there and the political ramifications of that. And in one situation, uh, women and children are killed. And is that our fault? You know, but they've declared war on us, but they're not a nation. So it has a lot of parallels, honestly, to the situation in Afghanistan, where we, I think, as a nation, didn't have a problem with the people of Afghanistan, right? It wasn't like the Afghanistan nation, like in World War II, where you had Germany and Japan, who were state powers directed their might against us. You have terrorist elements and terrorist groups residing in a country that, you know, maybe doesn't have the capability or the willpower to do something about it. But that affected us in 2001 pretty heavily. And therefore, what do you do? Do you declare war against them as a nation? Or do you get their cooperation to send our troops in to try to weed out these people? It's not as cut and dry as wars were back 60, 70 years ago. Back then, you had a leader of a state that would marshal their forces and invade. That's not happening in 2021. The world's too, or even 2001, the world's too connected now. That, that just doesn't really happen. But we still are a nation that should be bound by laws. And you know the reasons for us going in were muddied at the time. And I, I think only got muddier the longer we stayed. Yeah, I, I think that's true. But I, I like what you mentioned about it being the, the terrorist group within the country, because that really was the issue. It was Al-Qaeda who orchestrated the September 11 attacks in um, 2001. So that obviously made it complicated as far as declaring war. I think it would be helpful to kind of go through a quick timeline of kind of what got us involved in the war and then how it developed. And uh, it's 20 years, you know, that's our longest war ever. And it spanned four presidents. So it's kind of interesting to see the different decisions that got us here. So as everyone knows, you know, it really, it started with the September 11th attacks in 2001. And it's interesting. I feel like we're part of the the millennial generation, which remembers the the September 11th attacks, but as like elementary school kids. And like, we've had this war our entire lives. Um, I don't know. Do you guys, do you guys remember September 11th? I think I was in fourth or fifth grade. I remember. I was one younger. (laughs) Yeah. I remember it. I remember because I lived right across the street from the school that I attended elementary school. And so my walk was you know, 30 seconds to get there. And so when the planes hit the towers, I was in the living room with like my backpack on ready to go and remember seeing it and didn't understand, you know, the full context, right? You're, you know, young, but I was like, this is weird. I had enough context to realize that this was a a really bad thing that happened. And, you know, all the adults are acting weird that day just because they're like trying to keep a, a straight face on to act like nothing's wrong, but like you can tell kids are smart. So I remember that. And for me, I've been lucky enough to go to DC a couple of times and have gone to the museum and the museum has a really, um, well, had, like, they're not there anymore. Um, a really wonderful exhibit that it's like a 15 minute documentary. And um, yeah, it, it's really hard. You know, I, I um, I've seen it a few times and and it gets me every time because it's just, it's such a, 
it's the worst thing that's happened to the country um, in living color. You know, like I've, I've seen video and footage from World War II and D-Day and stuff, but it's black and white and it's shaky and you don't, you don't see the people, but you had cell phones and you had camcorders and stuff. And so um, I remember 9-11 really well, actually. And um, this month has been real shitty. <laughs> knowing that that we gave we gave these people everything that they had 20 years ago right back i remember it from um my dad had gone to go like start up his car to get ready for the day like to warm it up and he heard on the radio about it and then uh came inside and turned on the TV because it was just on the radio. He turned on the TV and I remember getting up and walking out to the living room. He was sitting on the coffee table, just like staring open mouth at the TV. And it was just this like moment that I really like, that's the biggest moment I remember of it, that it just kind of stopped everything. Um, and, and my teacher actually, I really appreciated, like I said, is fourth and fifth graders, but like we had it on, on the TV and she sat and talked to us about it and said, this is what happened. This is why it's a big deal this is what it means basically. And it was, I think that was really responsible to have that kind of conversation and and be willing to do it. I like really admire her because of doing that, but yeah, it's, I think it's helpful to kind of conceptualize like what it was like conceptualizing these sort of individual experiences, just because it has, you know, it's characterized foreign policy for our lives. And this is kind of where it started. Cassie, do you have any specific memories about that? I don't. This is this is a good recap though, because it kind of puts it in time. Okay, where were you in 2001? You were this age, or I know I've heard people talk about when they were in high school, or all I really remember is that there was a before and then there was an after. And like Zach said, like I've been to the the memorial at least once, I think, in DC. And it's it's all very upsetting, become a little bit more of like, this is normal and we're in this war to make it mean something and to make it better and whatever you feel about it we're now here 20 years later and nothing feels better yeah so continuing then I guess is is we went into Afghanistan in early October of 2001 very soon after the attacks had about a thousand troops by November and then in within the next year, we had increased that number to 10,000 troops. Can you just touch on just, I know it's obvious probably for some, but who, who's we, who, who said it, whose permission, all of that. So President uh, George W. Bush was president at the time. George W. Bush and his administration kind of made the push, but Congress backed it. There was a, um, they passed, uh, it was called the Authorization for Use of Force legislation. And that was uh, budgetary to allow these resources to be devoted to invading these countries. And every senator and every U.S. representative, except for one named Barbara Lee, she was a representative from California, voted in favor of this resolution to allow the budgetary spending, the military spending for going into, first it was Afghanistan. And then in 2003, there was the push to go into Iraq and the push to go into Iraq, this is, this is continuing under Bush still, was this was the weapons of mass destruction issue, which mm-hmm. you may have heard of this. It became very controversial because 
you know, there was potentially intelligence. We don't, it's still a little bit muddy about, you know, what they actually had to suggest that there were weapons of mass destruction. So nuclear weapons in Iraq. And it was this justification that the Bush administration and Congress at the time used to push into Iraq. Mm -hmm. Those claims didn't end up being founded in terms of actually finding nuclear weapons in Iraq. And so that is something that got a lot of attention later on. And I think the push to go into Afghanistan, specifically to hunt down and, you know, squash the people that did this to us, Al-Qaeda, like Aaron mentioned, and led by Osama bin Laden, right? Like, that's kind of the guy that at least at the time was the target of the United States ire. The push was, I think, pretty unanimous. Like Aaron mentioned, like everybody voted in favor. And I remember this too, as much as I remember 9-11, I remember the feeling after 9-11 was we are a country. Like I've never experienced a, such a sense of national unity before as September 12th on. It quickly dissolved, you know, given some months and some time. And um, I think by the time we, we went into invade, invade Iraq, I think that that moment of national unity had largely dissipated. But in the spirit of this podcast and what we're trying to do here, the days after 9-11 were incredible in terms of people just coming together and figuring it out and actually being like a United States. And I thought that that was really touching. And I would love to get back to that at some point without all the trauma and destruction that, that the day before brought us. You know, I agree with you, but... Yeah, I love that it was this like patriotic moment. I don't know that we made our best decisions though because of that. And I agree, yeah, like there was this big push to be able to go in, but this is this is the problem with this war in particular. It's you can trace back so many moments of should we have done that differently? And Barbara Lee, the one person who voted against this way back when, her comments that she made on the floor were actually really interesting, which was This is terrible, but this is a really high impact moment. And we need to consider what we're doing and the ramifications of that going forward. And I think, you know, obviously hindsight 2020, but that was an important thing to be said. And maybe we could have slowed down at that moment to to think about it a little bit more carefully about how we wanted to play this, what the goals were going to be. We had this like push where everyone was in agreement, but it was sort of you know, maybe we didn't make our best decisions partly because of that. I agree. And I think this is something we were probably going to lead to in any way, but you definitely had mission creep or in my job, we call it like scope creep, right? Where as we were there and same thing has happened in Vietnam, right? Like as you're there, your objectives change. And so you go in for a particular reason, but then since you're there, you're like, well, we're here. We may as well try to do some other things. And you saw Bush come in and say, we're going to do we're going to go after the people that, that targeted us. And then we were there for like a year or two. And then it became, well, we're going to try to do a humanitarian democracy, you know, nation building thing. And then that kind of, we were bogged down. And then towards the end of the Bush era, it was, you know, the, the infamous mission accomplished banner, right? On the aircraft carrier, we did it, but we're still there. And we're still, we're going to withdraw though. We're going to withdraw. We're going to, and, and then you had Barack Obama come in and he said, you know, we're getting out of Afghanistan. And during his administration, he brought troops in, you know, he increased the number, but then he started to pull out. The objectives were never really clearly defined. In World War II, it's, we go back to, it's the last time that there was a clear cut example, but the objectives were easy. It's unconditional surrender of Japan and Germany. 
we need them to surrender and, and accept any terms that we give them. You didn't have clear objectives like that. Okay, great. We went in and we, we took over the country. Okay, but Osama bin Laden's not dead, but Al-Qaeda still exists. They're not a democracy. Like there was no, there was no end point. So it drug on for four administrations. Right. And then there were also sort of these other ancillary things that happened because of this resolution authorizing the use of force. So particularly this stuff started under the Bush administration, um, but then continued. So a couple of those things were the Patriot Act, eavesdropping on U.S. citizens, which the Patriot Act was an act passed under Congress, was under the Bush administration, authorizing basically the CIA and other uh, intelligence organizations to monitor phone calls and communications, other sorts of things, if they had a, if they suspected sort of terrorist activity. Lots to talk about in the privacy episode. And it didn't up. have to go through a court. You weren't given notice that you were being spied on. Like it founded the TSA, which was, you know, doing search and seizures at airports and, you know, all these things that are now just routine that we accept. But the Patriot really was the one that that kicked all that off here, which is a huge civil rights violation. At home. We just accept it. But it is a huge F you to <laughs> the American citizen. Yeah. And it's so that was a, a big thing that started really because of this, you know, combating terrorism um, idea. And then another thing that that was set up was the detention camp at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba, which another I, I think really big stain on our history in terms of just authorizing uh, torture methods. And um, we found that out later as well, that the United States was engaged in these torture operations in the name of combating terrorism. There's some nuance there, but like that, that was another thing that kind of came out of this. And I think partly because it dragged on, the, the war dragged on and we didn't have these sort of only four years, only eight years, you know, whatever it is, some of that stuff flew under the radar for a lot longer than it would have if we had had more of a cap. And uh, Obama, one of the things that he ran on was closing the detention center in Guantanamo Bay. And he also ran, like Zach mentioned, he, he promised during his campaign that he was going to end the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Trump also ran on that campaign promise. Biden also ran on that campaign promise. Like this is, it's actually wasn't controversial and still actually is not controversial that people wanted us out of Afghanistan and Iraq. Like this is not a war, quote, war that has been popular for its entire history. But as Zach mentioned, the, there's been an ebb and flow of promising troops and sort of increasing them when the Taliban uh, attacks increase. And the Taliban are another terrorist group in Afghanistan that existed during Al-Qaeda. They're not actually the, the same group that um, perpetuated the 2001 um, attacks, but you know they, they have been the main antagonist for the United States recently. They're sometimes, they're sometimes allies of Al-Qaeda. They're sometimes enemies. Like they're, They both don't like us, but they don't like each other. So it's kind of an enemy my enemy thing for them. And and ISIS too is, you know, another joyful bunch thrown into that mix. Yeah. And it's just really interesting when you actually trace the yearly increases and decreases. So in the end of 2008, so the very end of Bush's second term, there were just over 48,000 U.S. troops in Afghanistan. Wait, Obama, sorry, how, how many, Aaron? Just over 48,000. 48,000? 48, yes. Wow. 
huge amount. In 2009, in the first months of Obama's presidency, that number surged to 68,000. And by December, it was 100,000. It was interesting because there was a caveat on the increase in troops from Obama, which was we're going to increase troops, but he added a deadline to reduce forces by 2011. So as we're going to increase now, partly because the Taliban attacks had increased and they, they were asking, ground troops were asking for more U.S. troops, but it was committed to this. Okay, we're going to then decrease troops later. The strategy um, was it, we're going to flood the nation. We're going to have a huge presence, really show a strong force, tamp this down. And then once things are under control, then we're going to like scale it back. Yep. And in May of 2011, so just a couple of years later, that was when Osama bin, bin Laden was killed in Pakistan, though, not in Afghanistan. And then uh, by June 2011, so a month later, Obama announced troop withdrawal. So by the end of Obama's presidency in 2016, uh, the withdrawal had slowed, but we had re- removed a lot of troops at that point. And there were 8,700 troops still in Afghanistan to stay into 2017. So you can see a huge deviation starting with, you know, 100,000 troops at the beginning of Obama's presidency, just under 9,000 at the end of his presidency. So then Trump comes in also with the campaign promise to get out of Iraq and Afghanistan, now primarily Afghanistan. And in the first year of his presidency, he also increased troops. So you can see a pattern here. Um, to a total of 14,000. And then in January of 2019, this is where we get to sort of some of the more recent things that really impacted our withdrawal, was when the U.S. foreign policy led by President Trump met with the Taliban to agree on a framework for actual withdrawal. So the framework was that the Taliban would guarantee the territory that they controlled would not become this is a quote, a platform for international terrorist groups or individuals. So basically they were saying, we're not going to engage with these terrorist groups and we won't attack you basically during your withdrawal was kind of the like conversation. Very significant. The Afghanistan government, which was set up basically by the United States, although they've had elections and, and the U.S. is trying to, you know, help the democratic election process, but very much supported by America The Afghanistan government was not part of these discussions between the U.S. and the Taliban. We were talking about withdrawal, and that's been a really big criticism since the withdrawal that has has gone so badly. So then in January 2021, so that was 19, 2021, U.S. has drawn down troops by January 15th. So right as Trump was leaving, the U.S. troops were reduced to 2,500. Biden continued the withdrawal pushed the deadline back. The deadline was earlier. He pushed the deadline back to September 11th, 2021, which is this Saturday. And in July, he announced that the full withdrawal was going to be done by August 31st. And since then, the Taliban, who has controlled parts of the country, went on full offensive, started basically conquering cities. And by August 15th, they entered Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan, overthrew Kabul, And currently the Taliban is in charge of Afghanistan and has basically assumed leadership of the government. The democratic government, you know, quote, democratic government that the U.S. set up is no longer in power. And that's kind of where we're at right now. Yeah. 
So you mentioned something, Aaron, earlier that I think is important because it is it is true that the war itself, when you say that the war is an unpopular war and it has been for some time, you know, I remember when I very first voted in a presidential election, I voted for my man, Ron Paul, and, you know, he was, he's a big isolationist. And that was, kind of, I think I had a very one track mind and very simplistic at that time in the 2012 election, I think it was, and was you know, in favor of getting out of Afghanistan. And, and, and like you said, that's been a popular platform that the American public has supported for a long time. And I think you can see it just in the troop numbers whenever a new administration comes in is that the presidents get in, they say, this is an unpopular war, we need to get out. And people are like, yes, I support you, we should get out. And then they get in and then they see the reality of the situation there. Clearly Bush surged, Obama surged, Trump surged, like everybody has done this. And then they realize, oh, this is you know, not tenable. Withdrawal is not tenable. We need to stay to you know, make it, the situation better or whatnot. And then eventually they, they do start to reduce those numbers. But I think something that's important to note is that, like you mentioned, Aaron, going into 2021, we only had 2,500 troops in the whole nation. And that was keeping the peace, you know, by and large in the entire state of Afghanistan. And we hadn't had a combat death in Afghanistan in 18 months before last week. So it's like, when you tell the American public, you know, are you in favor of withdrawal from Afghanistan and end the endless war, right, is, is kind of what it's been called. Overwhelmingly, that gets a yes, you know, I, I agree with that. But given the situation that we see on the ground, isn't keeping 2,500 troops and spending a few billion dollars a year to keep a state from becoming what it's become worth it? I think given the, given the details of the situation and the fact that there, there's nobody dying in Afghanistan, no Americans were, were dying for the last year and a half, like that's a very different reality on the ground than an endless war. I think that, at least for me, makes a difference in terms of now we handed the country back over to people who are savages and are some of the worst people on the planet. That to me is worth 2,500 troops. Yeah, I thought about that too. And there's been a lot of articles recently, different people saying, okay, does it, did it actually make sense for us to just stay? For anyone who doesn't know, I mean, the withdrawal, it was so bad, partly because our government, other governments, I mean, clearly underestimated how quickly the Taliban was going to take over. Some people think that we we should have known, basically, like really should have understood that that was going to happen a lot faster than anyone expected. And I think that that's something that we should really be continuing to look into, you know, like why were we so unprepared for that contingency to happen? And there's a couple of things related to that that I kind of want to mention. But in mm -hmm. terms of staying in Afghanistan, it seems like, okay, well, that, that seems like the obvious answer, right? To avoid this whole Taliban takeover. But when I was reading about this, there was a distinction between this and some of the other conflicts, other areas where we currently have troops, like we currently have troops in Korea, in some of these other countries to kind of maintain stability. The distinction that they were drawing was that those troops are not under attack the way that they are in Afghanistan. And yeah, the last 18 months has not been an attack. Arguably, that's because of this deal, though, that the Taliban made with the U.S. to kind of withhold their attacks until we were gone. And that was contingent on us leaving. And I think it's reasonable to assume that if we had reneged on that and said, actually, 
we're not totally going to withdraw, we're going to leave these troops here, there would have been an increase in Taliban attacks, which then vicious cycle, we would have mm-hmm. needed more troops to be able to guard against. And so I don't know that it's true to say like, yes, just leaving a few troops there to maintain stability would have worked. I think this pattern, which we can really see across 20 years, would have continued. Maybe, right? It's hard to know. But also the Taliban didn't hold up to their end of that of that deal. The deal was agreed upon in February 2019. And then like the next week or two, the Taliban attacked and the United States military led an assault on that group that attacked us. So I think that there was like they didn't live up to their end either. And we we were able to keep the peace, you know, relatively speaking, the low number of troops. The thing that I don't like is that you have Joe Biden out there saying, well, if we didn't, you know, because the the withdrawal was so disastrous, this just proves that we had to leave. That clearly is not the case. We were we were holding the country together with less than 3000 troops for a long time. And we weren't seeing the levels of violence and honestly regression. I mean, people, people say, oh, the Afghans, you know, they, they didn't want it. They didn't fight enough for their country. It's like, they are, they had, you know, as the Afghan army, way more combat deaths than, than we did. They lost way more people fighting for their country than, than we did during our, our time there. And we've been there 20 years. You have girls and stuff that have grown up and they don't know about Taliban rule. They're going to now. And that pisses me off that we left. We left them. They helped us. They risked their lives, their interpreters and guides and things. We left them there. And now there's people that are going to grow up that have never experienced this before. And it's going to be awful for them. And we left them. And that's not what we are as a nation. I'm, I'm like, it, it really makes me upset that we left them. They risked their lives for us and we left them. I don't know what to say. It's also heartbreaking. We're, we don't claim to be military experts or anyone who knows any better than anyone. We're just people living in the world that kind of hoped that the people in charge knew what they were doing. It's really disappointing to feel like they don't. I think we want it both ways. And I think we're being unrealistic about that. I think we want to think we can have low levels of troops there, and then it's just going to solve all the problems. And I just, I just don't think that's realistic. And if we are okay, you know, having our, our foreign aid budget, which like, yeah, that makes sense to me. It's not that much. It's 20 billion a year, which is a little more than half of our foreign aid budget that, that we've been spending in Afghanistan. If we're okay with that, and we're okay with, I think realistically, more American deaths in Afghanistan, even if they're very low numbers, I think that's, that's our trade-off. And then we're just there because 20 years is just not long enough to build the democracy. Right. And then I think it does beg the question of, is that our goal? Is that what we're trying to do? And then like, can that be accomplished? And maybe the risk of not doing that is totally worth it to be there and to just stay. And like, I think that that is a fair conversation to have, but I don't think that you can frame it as this is not continued military work there. It's still military work. It's still going to be combat. It's still going to be fighting. Like it's not the same as just a humanitarian NGO mission in a place where there isn't resistance. There's still going to be resistance there always. And I think it's just fair 
to have that be part of it. And, and maybe we're okay with that and that's fine, but we should be willing to say that. I mean, I think I'll say I am, I'm okay with it. I think that if, if the American people were presented with the actual scope of our involvement, truly and honestly presented with the scope of our involvement, hey, currently we have this many troops there. We know as a nation, we don't like this war, but here's the alternative, we leave. Women and children are brought back into slavery. Nobody can attend school anymore. You know, the reinstitution of Sharia law, where if you steal, they will cut off your hands. Like these are not things that are the scare tactics. These are things that the Taliban has announced that they are going to reinstate in this country. And so I, I don't like the idea of America, you know, as an empire or, you know, us going out and, and having these colonies or anything like, like, you know, we're not England, we're not taxing them and then bringing that revenue back to the United States. Like, I see a distinction there because those those people that lived in Afghanistan for the last 20 years had it better when we were there. And, and it did cost lives. It did cost American treasure. Like it did cost our blood. And I'm not serving. I'm grateful to those that did because I don't, I don't lay any of this of my feelings on their feet. Like they made lives better for hundreds of thousands of people in that country for the last 20 years. And so this purely is a political failure, in my opinion, and I think it's worth it. I think if you present the facts in an honest and clear way, that the American people would agree. But I think calling it the endless war and we need to leave and, and talking about the fact that we're continuing occupation there, like it, it's a different time. It's a different beast. Like we still have troops in Japan and stuff like it's, it's, it's part of the American foreign policy at this point. And you know, on the one hand, I think, yeah, we should have, you know, less military expenditure. I think we spend a lot of money on the military. I also, you see what happens when we don't stick to our, our doctrine. Like we have 13 people killed because we hastily left. Why did we leave Bagram Air Force Base? That was a secure place we had outside of the city. It was militarily secured and we left it because we needed to get out by an arbitrary date. I have some questions. Yeah. Can I can I say one thing about that though? Just like I don't think that I don't think Japan is a fair comparison though because you're not we're not getting attacked by people in Japan. Like we are getting attacked in Afghanistan and I actually agree with you. I would prefer us to stay in Afghanistan. I really would because mm-hmm. and for me my big issue is and this is for like everyone is women. Like this is women's rights are one of the things I care about more. Like really it's my issue. I care about it more than like really anything. Mm-hmm. And within a few days of Taliban taking over cities, women who worked at universities were told to go home. Like this is just, it's truly horrific. What happens to women under these regimes? Like it's really, really bad. So yeah, I'm like on your side on that, but I just think that if this is the side, like if this is what we want to choose, and this is what we want to argue for we just have to be realistic that it is not the same as just having troops in other peaceful countries. It's, it's just not, we are going to be in conflict and we're going to be fighting the Taliban. And that's what we're saying by saying we're going to stay there and that's fine. But like mm-hmm. that it, it's, it's different. I agree. I'm not saying it's going to be the same as, as troops, in, but I'm saying like, as a part of our, our American foreign policy, like we don't go in, fight someplace and then leave. Like we have troops in places that we fought because of the stability that it brings. And I totally recognize, I'm not saying that the troops that would have stayed in Afghanistan are gonna be in the same situation as Japan or Korea or something, but 
the the end effect is the same is that it will it will increase the stability of the place that we're that we're at okay so i guess i just think like it's fair to call it maybe not an unending war but a continuing war i think it's fair to call it that sure i think i mean you kind of just said you didn't like people saying oh it's an unending war like this is bad but i think it kind of is if that's a decision that we're making i think the connotations of calling it the unending war without providing a picture of what the war actually is people see unending war and they're like oh my god we're there we're fighting there's people dying all the time i think i think Mm -hmm. that's my distinction is i think if you were to come out and, and and actually set the reality in front of the, the American people and fine, call it the unending war. This unending war is preventing, you know, from more 9-11s and it's preventing women or it's, it's allowing women to go to school and not be sexual slaves and, you know, continuing education, like squashing terrorism in a place where it's very easy for it to crop up. Like I, if, I think if you present the situation in those terms, I mean, call it the unending war then, but at least the people know what it is we're fighting for. But I think just saying that makes it too simplistic where it's like, well, of course I don't want to be in a war forever. Well, and that's fair, definitely on the like too simplistic level. I think that's totally fair. I I think that if this is the commitment though, kind of like you're saying, you have to present it onto like, okay, here's what our goals are and here's what we're prepared to do. Because I, I really do think like if we were not starting to withdraw, the violence from the Taliban would have increased, which maybe means that we would have to commit more troops. Like I mm-hmm. don't think that we can rely on 2,500 troops being there is what's going to hold it for like the next 10 years. I mean, I, to, to me, again, like I'm, I'm grateful to the people that, that served there and, and everything, cause I'm not doing it. But to me, it seems like, you know, from the people that I follow on social media, which is, you know, again, not indicative. I'm, I'm not trying to like claim any kind of credibility here, but it just seems like the people that I follow that do serve are like in favor of staying because they felt like they were doing something worthwhile being there too. And they were making the risks. And again, I'm not speaking for everybody. Everybody's got very legitimate and different differing feelings on this. But to me, it seems like as a, as a country, the thing we were doing there was overall a net positive, even though it was spending our, our blood and treasure, like it was still a good thing. One of the sentiments I've been kind of hearing too from um, military personnel is it makes all the time that we spent there feel worthless because right. of how quickly, you know, the Taliban took over and basically they're, they've already reinstituted so many of the things that we were trying to get rid of. Right. Cass, turn it over to you. I had two questions. One is when we look at this through the framers lens, what are their feelings on foreign policy? Really, my framework is Hamilton and them singing about, I want to talk about neutrality, but I seriously like to wonder what they would have wanted here. And the other question I have is, what's the complaint that we're hearing that this was badly handled? What would be better? Should the American people have voted? Do Why did did we vote and we didn't get all the information? Did we vote a long time ago and it's out of date? I do feel like a little bit blindsided by this. And that's maybe why I'm in the podcast, because sometimes things are happening in the world that I'm not super aware of. But I did feel like, wow, this 
did we know this was going to go this badly? This was really bad and really shocking. And I just kind of wonder, like, what did you guys see coming? What are you hearing from people saying we should have done? Can I jump in on that second one first? You can argue that we voted for this by, you know, how we have elected our presidents. And so whether it's a, we specifically voted on this, it's not like we voted on the legislation, but we voted on the policy. It's not controversial that people wanted us out of these countries. Arguably, we didn't think carefully enough about what that would mean uh, in the like general population. But, you know, I think that in terms of that, we could have expected by voting over and over that this is something we wanted, that it was eventually going to, you know, withdraw. The withdrawal plan was put in place by Obama, Trump, and the administration of the U.S. made this deal with the Taliban in 2019, you know, to have troops out by 2021. And so I, I would say, yeah, we, we should have known that at least the whole withdrawal was coming. I think there's a lot you can talk about in terms of how we did the withdrawal. One of the alternatives is what we just talked about which is staying. Say we were just committed and we're getting out, doing the getting out part. There's a lot of things that people have talked about that we could have done better. I'm going to give Zach a chance to jump in. I'll quickly just say, I think the founders, we were a much smaller nation at the time and the founders were recognized the United States was not in a position financially, militarily to enact foreign policy. Our foreign policy was very much economic. It was going to be, we will trade with nations. We will increase commerce. Our main asset is that we have a ginormous pool and we can send ships and have really good trade policy. And so that was our foreign policy for the longest time um, was we are very isolationists. We do not get involved. Europe is Europe's problem. As the world got smaller, that changed. You had Wilson, Woodrow Wilson in World War One, and um, even FDR and stuff from World War II that was ran adamantly in keeping the United States out of the world wars. You know, we, we did get involved with Spain and Mexico in our westward expansion, but, you know, even as, as late as the early 1900s, you saw this very strong isolationist bent from the United States where we did not want to get involved. It was not our problem. But eventually, I think, you know, World War II really changed everything. World War I, I think, really set the, the conditions up. That's, I think, the real answer is, you know, when you have Gab Gabrilo Princep murder Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria, that started the whole ball rolling to get to where we are today. I truly think because World War I ended in such bad conditions that you eventually have the environment for World War II set up. And then from there, you have literally Europe destroyed, just in ruins. And then out of the ashes, you have the United States as the only country that didn't have its infrastructure destroyed, didn't have you know its entire population wiped out. Um, the Russians lost 12 million people. Like that's are you kidding me? Can you imagine those kind of losses in, in 2021? So then you have the Cold War, and then that feeds right back into where we started this, is now you have the United States and Russia fighting a proxy war in Korea and Vietnam. I know it's not quite exactly what you asked, but that's kind of, I think, the slide of where we started from being a very much cautious nation into extending ourselves through fate and through you know, circumstance to get to the point where we were in the position in 2001 where we felt like we had to be the world's police. I think the American public doesn't want that, but we felt like we had to at the time. And that's why we went to Afghanistan and Iraq and have been there. Aaron, what, I don't know if you have anything on that. 
I was just going to say, and there's also, you know, the, uh, another side of this, I think you're right. We, we hate this idea of like, oh, we have to police the rest of the world. Why is that our job? You know, but at the same time, there's been, you know, horrible things that have happened in other countries where we're like, well, why, why would we not get involved? Like, why did we not get involved in that? One of them being the Rwandan genocide. Mm-hmm. That was something where it was like, well, what we have the resources. Why did we not step in to stop that? Like we stepped in to help stop the Holocaust. There's these other areas where, which like, that's not a one-to-one comparison, right? Because the World War II had other things going on as well. I mean, we're attacked during World War II, but okay, well, what's best for our country versus like, what is the actual just humanitarian response here? And I think that that is the question when you're talking about Afghanistan too, it's probably not maybe best for our country if you're just going to go by numbers and troops to stay in Afghanistan. But then like, what's your trade-off, right? And it's, right. is this a humanitarian mission that is worth right. us staying? And I think that's a question a lot of people are asking themselves right now. And I think that it's fair for us to be critical of ourselves in a, as an American public and that we can't just pass this off to all of our leaders. I think that we also ask for this by saying that we don't want to be policemen of the world and we want to get out of the Middle East. Like we've all yeah. said that. And I think we also need to take responsibility for that as like citizens. I I agree to a point though, because because you answered Cassie's question about did we vote on this? And I think you're right. Like we did vote the people that voted on it. And and we are a nation of you know self-governance. And so I think to an extent we did, but we did not vote on this on this withdrawal. And in my opinion, it was an absolute like there's no nothing redeemable about it. So in terms of like, we didn't vote on the tactics on how we withdrew, but we did, to Aaron's point, vote in favor of eventually withdrawing. And now this is my problem of, you know, you said, what what would you have liked to have seen? A plan maybe would have been a good place to start. Like having a plan would be a, a great one. The fact that that you have the Biden administration saying in, you know, May, when asked that we were, you know, once it was confirmed that we were going to be withdrawing, hey, do you see any situation where this is going to be like Saigon? I've heard this quote like probably six times of, no, come on, this is a totally different situation. You had six battalions storming the gates of Saigon. This is nothing like that. The Afghan army is incredible. They are, you know, one of the best armies on the world. You're never going to see a situation like Saigon. And literally you have this mirror image picture of us helicoptering diplomats off the American embassy in, in Kabul. Um, so why was the administration not telling American citizens back once they knew in March, April, May, Hey, we're leaving. You guys should get out. They said, Nope, the country's great. In fact, Biden was on a call with the Afghanistan president saying, I want you to lie about the situation on the ground for our continued air support, the United States providing air support. Sorry, um, I don't know anything about that in terms of like lying to the president of Afghanistan. When did this happen? What are Reuters, you talking about? Reuters just broke the story this last week that Biden had a call with the then president of Afghanistan, encouraging him to lie about the situation, saying it's not as bad. We have it under control in exchange for Americans continued air support for their military, because the, the Afghanistan military is based off of our military, which relies heavily on air support. We don't fight wars anymore like they used to with infantry. Like we do have infantry troops, but our greatest asset as the United States is that we have a very robust and elaborate air support capability. So you can have targets identified by people on the ground and then strike them from a relatively safe manner 
by aircraft. So I think that you you have very mixed messages coming out of the Biden administration. And like I said earlier in the episode, we had a very secure airbase outside the city, a 20 minute helicopter right away that we gave up. In fact, the Afghanistan's said, do you want to control the city until your withdrawal or do you want us to take it? And we gave them Kabul. We said, no, you guys provide us security. How on earth is that acceptable? We have 13 dead Americans now and 95 plus dead Afghanistan and other people from a suicide bomb at the gates of the airport. Because, and we, we gave them the city. We left behind billions of dollars in military equipment, night vision helicopters, Humvees, rifles, machine guns, radio communications. We left all of that. We left behind service dogs in cages in the airport. We left it for them. And I don't know what they do with those dogs. You have Taliban soldiers raising the Taliban flag, mocking us like the soldiers that raised the flag on Iwo Jima during World War II. They recreated it using all-American battle dress, and they wore our stuff, and they did the photo. So I would have liked to have seen a plan. I would have liked to have seen us keep Bagram Air Force Base. I would have liked to have seen us get everybody out. We didn't even get everybody out. There's still American citizens there. There's like 14 people from Sacramento that are still stuck there. A three-year-old baby still stuck there. I would like to have seen us get our, our allies out, our trans, translators and their families, because we also gave them a list of people that helped us and American citizens that helped us. So to quote, allow them to get through the checkpoints. You don't think that those people are going to be targeted first. Once we're gone, they're going to be defenseless. They already asked everybody to give up their arms. What do you think they're going to do with that list? Think they're just going to burn it. They're going to hunt those people down and kill their families or something unless they don't help the Taliban now. This was a disaster. And a week ago, I asked my congressman, what are you going to do? What are you going to do about this? Because this was not an effective plan. This is not a good plan. And somebody should lose their job for it. I think Biden, I think all the heads of the military should lose their jobs too. This is unacceptable. You have China and Russia already coming in to make friends with the Taliban. This is a disaster. We don't have any Air Force bases close to this country now. 600 miles away in, in Qatar is our closest Air Force base. We say we have over the rising capabilities. We don't. We have no eyes on the ground anymore. Pakistan won't help us. Pakistan's now putting pressure on India. This is a geopolitical disaster for no reason because we want it out of an endless war. I, I, I am very upset by all of this. It's such a failure of our country. I don't think that anyone disagrees that this was the, the way the withdrawal happened was terrible. You know, like no one, no one disagrees with that. The only thing that I would say about it is if the, if the mission is to get out and it was like, we've already talked about whether that should have been the mission or not, there was arguably no way for it to be done well, but absolutely should have been done better than what happened. I think there are, com there's complicating factors though. And one of the things that they've brought up is that President Ghani, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Does anyone know how to pronounce his name? I think it's, uh, is it Ashram Ghani? Ghani. Okay. Yeah. President Ghani in June had a conversation with Biden asking the U.S. to be conservative and granting visas and not to pull everyone out because he's trying to avoid a panic and make it not look like America lacked faith in the Afghanistan government. And so there were complicating factors related to this. Barely, we should have been 
way more realistic, agreed on the military aspect. I'm not sure where the information was coming from that it was going to take the Taliban months plus to to start taking over cities. And that's the big gap, right? Like that's a big gap in knowledge where it seems like that is obviously something we should have known. That was not part of these military briefings and obviously needed to be. If the goal is to get out, then the goal also has to be to empower the people of the country to be able to run the country. And I think that that is, was where the focus was trying to be. And clearly that didn't work. You know, I I don't think it's quite as straightforward as, oh, we had zero plan. I don't think there was no plan. You know, I don't think that this is just on Biden. I think this is on Bush and this is on Obama and it's on Trump and it's on Biden. This is everyone. This is Congress. This is everyone who led to this moment. And I am kind of curious about your, you know, Biden should lose his job for this. Like, are, do you think this is impeachable? I mean, like, what are you, 100%. what are you talking about? Here? Absolutely. Why? It's not against the constitution. This isn't, he, he didn't, I, I mean, you can, I think, he, you know, you can clearly vote him out. You can disagree with what he did, but this is disagreeing with foreign policy. This isn't, he didn't do anything unconstitutional. I think which if is you, cause for impeachment. I think the level of incompetence displayed in this withdrawal is is egregious. And so I think that if you have Biden on a phone call with with Ghani saying you need to obfuscate this reality of the situation on the ground in exchange for American air support, like is that not a quid pro quo? Is that not what Trump was impeached for? Was a quid pro quo? If Trump was impeached for it, I think a Biden should be impeached for it too. I think that the fact that there was so much bad information coming out of the administration in the months leading up to the evacuation is that people didn't leave because they felt like the country was going to be safe and it wasn't safe. And Biden was on an interview with Stephanopoulos and Stephanopoulos asked him, are you going to get everybody out? He says, we're going to try our best to get everybody out. And Stephanopoulos said, well, what if by August 31st deadline, everybody's not out? well, we're going to try our best to do it. And if they're not, you're going to go in and get them. We'll think about it. You're leaving people behind. You're leaving American citizens. And what happened to the green card holders? In the beginning days of this, when the Taliban was taking over the country, we said, we're going to get out citizens, green card holders, and allies, you know, people that helped us during the last 20 years. And now I don't hear anything about the green card holders. Did we get all them out? They have the same legal rights under the constitution as, as citizens do. Did we get them out? Because they were, they put their lives on the line to help us too. And so I feel like I want, there should be accountability here. If nobody loses their jobs for this, I, I, don't, I don't know what, I mean, there's no recourse. We can't do anything. Well, you can vote out everyone. There is recourse. Yeah. But I mean, there, there should be resignations and firings, but the problem is it's Biden's policy. So who's he going to fire? He can't fire himself, but I think he should resign or he should be impeached. There's 13 people that are dead that didn't have to be dead. I don't see why we had to rush out of there with no plan. Again, why did we give up Bagram Air Force Base? Militarily speaking, it was out of the city. It's easy. City, you have so many compounding factors that allow for people to come and approach your the Air Force. That had two airstrips in Bagram. The airport it's there just... in the city only has one. It's surrounded by buildings. Why did we give up a very strategic, secure military location? When we knew we were going to be evacuating tens or hundreds of thousands of people. The way it happened, huge issue. But in terms of rushing out, like why did we rush out when we didn't have to? 
we did kind of have to because we committed to leaving. That's what we decided we were doing as our foreign policy. And it's like, we can be upset about that, but that, that was what we chose to do as part of our foreign policy. And so I don't think you can put all of that on the most recent administration when we've been choosing to do this basically for 15 years and trying to withdraw and that the start of the withdrawal happened because of a deal that happened the last administration. I don't like, I don't disagree that this was maybe the worst way we could have done it, but I don't think that I, this is a culmination of a long period of time. It's not just the one decisions that happened in the last year. There was no way ever that we were going to get out of Afghanistan clean. That was never going to happen. I don't disagree with the sentiment. I, I don't like that Trump made a deal with the Taliban. Like I'm not, but he's not in power right now. Biden's the commander in chief. If he wanted to stay longer, he could have stayed longer. They're, they're a terrorist organization. They're not a legitimate nation. I understand if you made a deal with Germany or the UK and you need to respect that deal because you have a lot of very intricate, delicate, and you know mutually beneficial things happening between the two nations. This is a terrorist group. They are not a legitimate nation. They are yeah, a I terrorist agree. group. And they so should what not were have... we doing making deals with them in 2019? I mean, see, this is one of the big issues. And obviously this is getting a lot of attention right now. Like, and so maybe we break that deal, like you're saying, okay? Like, yes, Biden's commander in chief and he can do that. And that's fine. You expect, you, you break that deal. Okay, we're going to expect way more violence from the Taliban. And that's your trade-off. And maybe that's fine. But more American citizens could have died from that too. So again, I think it just goes back to, there's not an easy answer here. But it's American soldiers, not American citizens. And it's Taliban soldiers, not Taliban citizens. If we cut off a deal, then you have the military who signed up for this fighting the Taliban, not a car bomb in the middle of, of Kabul. And it's drawing, I think, a false equivalence of saying, well, if we didn't do this, or if we did this other thing, then this other thing could have happened. Maybe, but maybe not. We gave up the country voluntarily to a terrorist group, and, and we gave them weapons. We funded and armed a terrorist group. My taxpayer money bought those, those M4s and those Humvees and those Black Hawk helicopters and those night vision goggles and those uniforms. Like, that's my money. That's your money. That's, your, like, that's our money that we sent that they have. How is that not? Sorry, this is very frustrating for me and and I'm like not upset or anything at you guys. Like I, I think by and large we're all on the same page about this, but I just like the fact that we gave the country back over and then armed them on the way out with with all this stuff and 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 the situation that's gonna be there now is is it really it it frustrates me a lot. It gets to me and and so I'm sorry because I've been I'm very emotional today and um it's definitely not you know towards you guys. I mean, I, def yeah, I, I definitely understand and accept that sitting here nervous that other people will hear us talk about this, but that's kind of the point. I don't want to not talk about it because we all feel miserable. The main thought that's going through my head, and maybe this is too simplistic, but it feels like if, if this was two years ago, Aaron and I would be mad like you and you would have been like, this is the best we had to do. It was never <laughs> going to go well, blah, blah, blah. It feels like people will always side with what their side thought was best at the time. That's, oh my God, that's such a fair point, Cassie. Like, I really think that is, and I hadn't thought about that, but like, I switched this 
and this was Trump's withdrawal. Like, yeah, I think I am, I, I am upset right now. I think I would be more upset, you know, like way more yeah. upset. And that's totally, I think that's a totally valid point. It's not to say like we're wrong. I think we're all upset. It's an upsetting thing. Um, I think if, if Obama had told us he had done the best he could, I would have been like, I believe you. This was the best. If Trump had said it, I would have been like, you're a dumbass. <laughs> and well, you could have, you should have done better and you should have done more and you, your head should be rolling for sure, Zach. I would have felt the same. And so that's, I'm kind of just trying to crack the egg here a little bit to be like, yeah. you know, you've both been saying everything you're saying is right. Well, and for the record, like, I don't think the handling of this was good. And I also don't think that Biden's statements about it have been helpful. You know, there's been a lot of defensiveness about it and almost a little bit of hand-waving of like, if we were going to get out, we were going to get out and this is what we could do. And I'm not going to keep Americans there who are potentially going to die. Like that's been the rhetoric and it just has not been sensitive to what the situation is, you know, whether you want to say that you made mistakes or not, like he probably should say that. Right. But Bush wouldn't say that like Trump wouldn't, no one, no one says that when they're like in power, even if maybe they should that aside, the conversation about it has not been sensitive to the situation. And I think that is a failing for sure. Yeah, I agree. Him like checking his watch at the dignified transfer five times. Are you kidding me? Yeah. See, and that's something I haven't even seen. Yeah, me neither. I didn't even know. But that's just how it goes. Really? But Zach, that's how it goes. I'm telling you, if if any if it Trump or anyone else, I would have seen it a thousand times by now. And, and it could literally have been Biden being disrespectful. And I would literally probably like, I literally haven't even seen it. It infuriates me. I, I'm kind of surprised it didn't make it out at all. But Because maybe it's nothing. And maybe it's there, just another reason to be mad. Or maybe it's everything. Who even knows? He's there at Dover Air Force Base to welcome home the bodies of, of the 13 members that were killed in that suicide bombing. And the parents that were there, and it's on camera, it's, it's not word of mouth, like it, it was filmed. The parents that were there said, yeah, like at least five times, once they brought down, you know, one of the caskets and the American flag, he would look down, pull up his sleeve on his thing, look at his watch and then like come back. I'm like, what else do you have to do today? Right. Like these are, these are our like men and women that are dead because of this situation. What else is more important than this? And it's, it's just incredibly disrespectful. And goes up there and then says, this is the largest airlift in history. No other nation could have done this. It was a huge success. I'm like, yeah, but there's like Americans that are dead now because we got out when we didn't need to. Yeah. We stay though. Again, it's, it's more, maybe different Americans, maybe the same. And I don't know, maybe that is a false equivalence, but I don't, I'm feeling a little bit, I'm trying, I'm like, I really like want to be sensitive about it. And I, but like, I disagree with a little bit of, of the characterization. I've never seen you this upset, I don't think, about something that someone has done. I think that the only equivalent, I don't know about adding this to the pause, the only equivalent that I can think of is how upset I was when we talked about the January 6th insurrection, which is probably as upset as I have ever been talking about politics, like with you. Yeah, I mean, that, that feels right to me. I see it as such, not only for the tragedy that it is, for our, our service men and women, but for the people that, that live in Afghanistan, but also like for, for what that means, like for the country, 
in the next 50 years. You know, like I just, I think it's going to have really, this decision, I think projects a lot. I think it, it, it sends a lot of messages to the world. And one of the things that, that I think is so disheartening for me is that I believe in this country so much. I, I love the things that we stand for generally. You know, I, I think that we are a good nation and the Chinese Communist Party made a tweet like to the people of Taiwan. Hey, just so you know, like Americans probably won't come to your aid if we ever do anything. Don't get too comfortable having America as your ally because they're not going to come for you in your time of need. And that just like the Chinese Communist Party is not a good group of people either. And I think it opens the door for a lot more like turmoil in the world. And I think that's something that we could have pre prevented. And we don't even know the full like effect of this decision yet. And there'll be more misery in the world because of it. That's what makes me sad and, and upset. Yeah. And I think that that's like totally valid. I think the part that I'm feeling frustrated about is that I don't think that this is all on the current administration or the current Congress. I think this has been a long time coming in how we have handled the situation over there for many years and that there's a lot of people to blame. And I, I, I said this before, and I think that we're part of it. I think, I think the U.S. citizenry is part of this and that we also need to take some responsibility on the kind of foreign policy that we want. And we have said over and over and over again that we're not okay staying in the Middle East. Yeah. We've said right that now. Yeah. And we're out and it was, and it was terrible. And I think that we need to like face that. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. I, I didn't like the Trump kind of deal with terrorists when he did it, you know, like I don't just blame this administration, but I do blame them for everything that happened the last like two months for this, for the last two months, yeah. because yeah. I think that Biden is commander in chief, but I, I do agree with you. I think that it's not, I, I don't just place all blame on them, but I would have liked to have seen them do it better and, and make better decisions, you know, demilitarize all the equipment we left there. Like, don't just leave it. They did, they did some. demilitarize some of that. Did you see the article about, it was so interesting. It was Taliban who were like really surprised that the that helicopters like had been demilitarized and they were yeah. like, well, why were the government now? Like they were like betrayed that yeah. the U.S. didn't leave operational helicopters. Yeah. <laughs> well, of course they would have this. It was like, like really though, it was the, the delusional thinking there yeah. was just, it, it was wild to read the story. I do. I don't just blame them because I recognize that there's mistakes and decisions that have been made all along the way. Oh my gosh. So sorry, I have to correct this just because this is a thing from my dad. Mistakes have been made is something that Bush said way back when, when we were talking about WMDs and not finding mm, them. Yeah. It's passive voice when you say mistakes have been made because no one is taking responsibility. Right. It's mistakes have been made, not I made mistakes or we made mistakes or this person did it. And like, right. I do think it's worth it to point that out because everyone needs to take responsibility here. Yeah. That doesn't happen a lot. Man, this has been a tough conversation. Well, I know for me, it's been hard feeling like who, who, do, who helps, who helps, who do we donate to who's on the ground that can protect, that can train, that can, you know, get people out or help those who are staying. I don't have answers this moment, but hopefully by the time you're listening to this, dear listener will, uh, will be able to post some resources and some links. Cause that always really helps me. 
I was just going to say thanks. Thanks to everyone for um, joining us today. And I don't know, just, just bearing with the tough conversation, right? Like this is, it's an important thing for us to talk about and not just to be aware of. It's a big thing that's happening in our world. And it, I think like we need to be really aware of the consequences of our decisions and just keeping in mind the power that we have as the United States and what we do with it. Yeah. Really well said, you know, we are at least for now still, you know, the world's, you know, leading superpower. And so what we do does matter. And that means that not just like what the president does or, or what your party leader does, but like what you do matters, who you vote for matters, what policies you support matters. So I just would encourage people to really research like what it is that they care about and, and not just like go along with the party line. Cause I know that's how you get in trouble sometimes. And Thanks for bearing with us today. I know it's hard for me. Yeah, for sure. For me, I like to re restate our mission sometimes in my head and I'll maybe do it out loud today. Arguing with your friends and your family about politics is hard. <laughs> this is hard. We intentionally often avoid this at all costs. It sucks. And it's much, much easier to scroll through Instagram with a bunch of people who agree with you and a bunch of businesses or leaders in podcast world or world leaders that agree with you. And you can just be mad at whoever is that week that did a bad job. And you can try and donate or talk to people that, you know, agree with you about how awful things are and kind of move forward. But compromise is not reached this way. When we don't talk to and listen to others that have different feelings and beliefs, we don't learn about our blind spots. We don't learn about what other opportunities might be out there to think about something in a better way to achieve new greener grass. And even though this sucks, like there was a lot that I learned today that I didn't know and it's uncomfortable, but I know more now and hopefully I'll do more. Like I didn't, I didn't blame myself at all for this, but yeah, we have all been saying for years, like we shouldn't be the world's police and we shouldn't be in Afghanistan anymore. And like, we've had all these soldiers for 20 years who are dying and missing lives with their family. Like I firmly feel like I didn't even put this on my shoulders, but I definitely have made votes and retweeted things that were in favor of maybe not the way it was handled, but exactly what just happened. So it is a little bit eye-opening and I know that's a little bit of an oversimplification, but I do just want to stress that it's important that we keep talking and listening to each other about the hard things. Thanks for just also Zach being vulnerable and honest about like what you're thinking and where you are. I know it's, it was a tough conversation. It's tough for me to see you upset. I mean, like, it's not, it's the whole thing is hard. Yeah. I'm, I'm like glad that you feel like you can talk about it with, with us, but I'll have a conversation like this at some point too, probably. Well, thanks for sticking there guys. Cause I, I didn't expect to get like as upset as I was today. But I think I've been out walking Dallas in the morning, just hearing news. And I'm like, every day, how can it get, how could it get worse? And every day, somehow, I feel like it gets worse. Um, and so I think it was just kind of a couple of weeks of me imbibing and not out having any kind of outlet. And so I appreciate you guys sticking with me. And um, I hope I kept it. So I know I was pretty passionate, but I, I hope it was okay. And I just, I hope we can make it better. And if anybody knows of one that they're particularly passionate about or that they've heard about, please, please share with us. We want to be doing our part. So thank you. We appreciate it. Then let's uh, call it here and we'll be back uh, next week with another episode. And everybody stay safe. Take care Look of each, out other. For each other.
<laughs> Hi, y'all. Thank you for listening to the Reframers Pod. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please rate and review us five stars and subscribe so you can always catch our latest episode. You can also find us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Reframers Pod. And you can email us at reframerspod at gmail.com.